This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. Every time one of these decisions comes out from the court with, you know, some tiny little concurrence, it's such an insult to the enormity of the issue and to the depth of the record that was marshaled before a federal judge to demonstrate the urgency of the situation. For too long, we have approached the discussion of the courts and the debate on individual nominees as if this was something playing out at a Princeton eating club. Hi, and welcome back to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast about the courts and the law. I'm Dahlia Lithwick. I cover those things for Slate. And in a few short days, the 2020 presidential election will take place in the midst of a pandemic among a badly polarized electorate and with rising threats of vote suppression, vote stealing, and vote uncertainty. The judicial branch, usually tasked with exerting a stabilizing adult-in-the-room vibe on all this, has spent the week doing, well, anything but. On Monday, Justice Amy Coney Barrett was hurriedly sworn in after failing to garner a single vote from a Democratic senator. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States, accompanied by Justice Clarence Thomas and Justice Amy Coney Barrett. Footage of the ceremony at the White House, Justice Barrett ascending to the South Portico with the President, pausing for the photo op at the top of the steps, candles flickering behind them. It was all repurposed as a Trump campaign ad within hours. The Supreme Court then handed down a rapid-fire series of orders in voting cases out of Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and North Carolina. At least three justices are now putting forth arguments that have nothing to do with vote fraud, but instead are making broad claims about state courts' authority to interpret state law, and the implication certainly that ballots that arrive just a second after Election Day will carry some presumption of illegitimacy. This election was already a nail-biter, but the possibility that the courts could invent a reason to start just pitching mail-in ballots has been the source of this week's legal breakdown. Justice Barrett has not participated so far in these votes, but her participation in next week's could truly, truly change everything. So that's happening. And we are going to talk to Sherilyn Eiffel of the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund about all of it. Later on in the show, we're also going to hear from Brian Fallon. He's a former director of public affairs at the Justice Department and Senate staffer to Chuck Schumer, who has turned his hand now to court reform, co-founding Demand Justice, and working to arm progressives in the asymmetrical warfare over the courts. Slate Plus members are going to hear that interview in full. It is a fascinating insight in how federal judicial selection sausage actually gets made and how progressives might just tackle this entire system failure head on. 
If you're not a Slate Plus member, you can always go to slate.com slash amicus plus for full details. Slate Plus members get access to bonus content from this show and a whole bunch of other shows. Never hit a paywall on slate.com. And Slate Plus members also urgently, importantly, and we are so grateful, support all the journalism we do here at the magazine. And we thank them for that. But first, to the polls and to the courts, uh, our very first guest today is Sherilyn Eiffel. She's going to help us understand the connection between the courts and the law and race and elections. Sherilyn is the seventh president and director counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund. Among her successful cases that she has brought was a landmark Voting Rights Act case, Houston Lawyers Association versus Attorney General of Texas. Sherilyn's 2007 book, on the courthouse lawn, confronting the legacy of lynching in the 21st century, reflects her lifelong professional engagement in issues at the intersection of race and American public life. And I have to note, she was also just named one of Glamour Magazine's Women of the Year, which I I love because I think it really does symbolize the ways in which women lawyers have become the heroes of this age. So, Sherilyn, welcome back to Amicus. Thanks so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. So, so Sherilyn, let's start with this. When I was preparing to talk to you, it occurred to me that I just wanted to ask you how many times every day you think about Thurgood Marshall. Um I, I, I mean, I know those are big shoes that, that you fill. I also know uh, we have in some ways slid backward from the America that he thought he was bringing us toward. Let's start with the speedy nomination, the confirmation, the elevation of Amy Coney Barrett to the court this week. Uh Thoughts on that? I know a lot of people experience that Monday night vote and quick coronation as a body blow. Yeah, it was difficult. I can't deny that um, in a, on a multiple levels. Um, you know, you you referenced her speedy uh, confirmation. First of all, the what I have called indecency of of naming someone to the seat so soon after Justice Ginsburg had passed away the ignoring of Justice Ginsburg's, uh, you know, dying wish, which interestingly, Judge Barrett was never asked about uh, at her confirmation hearing, despite expressing her great respect for Justice Ginsburg. So that that was rather indecent. We had framed at the Legal Defense Fund, we had framed our objection to her, not only as an objection based on her record and what it might mean for civil rights, but also we just refused to participate in what we thought of as uh, an effort to engage in kind of magical thinking, as though we were not in the middle of this pandemic that is decimating black and brown communities in particular across the country, and for which there is no new relief bill that is desperately needed. And so we were all supposed to pretend that that wasn't happening and that it wasn't urgent and what that means for black people. So let's leave aside like just civil rights as it gets to the Supreme Court. There was something very present facing us. It's been estimated that 40% of black owned small businesses will not survive this pandemic, 40%. So that's the context in which We were watching a party in the Rose Garden and watching the Senate go through the motions as though this was perfectly normal. And then, of course, the other thing that was happening is that we were in the middle of an election and people were going out and casting ballots in early voting. We were in litigation trying to relax some of the restrictions around absentee voting 
And in particular in Alabama, in a case that did end up making its way up to the Supreme Court, the court even allowed the 11th Circuit to end curbside voting in Alabama, which was another way to keep the population safe. So we're desperately trying to keep the Black population safe from exposure to the COVID-19 pandemic because of our extreme vulnerability and increased levels of infection and death. In the middle of all of that, there was this nomination of Amy Coney Barrett, and we were all supposed to join this magical choreography as the, the very lives of the people that we represent at LDF, the people in our communities was not at stake and was not being ignored by the Senate. So I just feel the need to just say that before we start talking about the dynamics of the court. And so in that sense, yes, Thurgood Marshall was very much front of mind for me, not just as a Supreme Court justice, but as someone who was so committed to the reality of the lives of Black people in his work and who even in his position on the court was able to speak in his opinions in ways that, that were real, that were present about race and about justice. Um, and it almost seemed that the way this nomination was going forward perfectly exemplified that divide, the divide between what the court wants to say about itself, the, the pomp and circumstance, the, the choreography, the, you know, all of the words and the reality of injustice. Um, so it was, it was difficult and painful. I just want to stay on this issue for one more second, Sherilyn, because the other thing that I, I experienced viscerally was that the same cynicism around replacing Justice Marshall with Clarence Thomas was really manifest in the cynicism of saying, oh, Amy Coney Barrett effortlessly slides into the legacy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg because she's a woman, because she has children. Uh, and and I don't, it, it felt like trolling in much the same way that uh, the, the Clarence Thomas, the effort to sort of make this really facile uh, comparison felt like trolling. But this also, I think, has to be noted that the notion that the person who is probably going to undo most of the judicial doctrinal legacy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg happens to be a woman, and therefore it's an affront to the memory of Ruth Bader Ginsburg to object to her, felt like a piece of messaging that was just a deliberate slap in the face. Yeah, and it was kind of um, retro, to your point, because, you know, for those who um, can remember, the nomination of Clarence Thomas was very fraught, in its, uh, particularly in its early days, because uh, he is Black, right? And the idea that he was going to be uh, replacing the first Black Supreme Court justice, um, but was also Black, made some people very cautious. One of the things I've always said that I've been very proud of is that I was then a young lawyer at the Legal Defense Fund. And we did what we always do. We evaluate the record of Supreme Court nominees. And we did. We read every single thing he ever wrote. We looked at every matter that he was involved in. We looked at all of his work and came to the conclusion that we had to oppose his nomination. Now, this was difficult for us because we knew that people would say, you know, well, they're just opposing him because, you know, obviously Thurgood Marshall was their founder. And, you know, this is kind of sour grapes. And so we were very careful about our approach to his record. This is before the allegations involving Anita Hill came out. And we issued a report 
and we opposed his nomination, which was a big deal because even African-American organizations were not opposing Clarence Thomas. And I've always said about that, number one, that I was very proud of it, that we stuck to our principles and recognized that he was a danger and that in our view, he at that point certainly was not someone we could support to sit on the Supreme Court. But also that in some ways, what happened in that nomination kind of freed us. I don't mean just LDF, I mean the black community because we have been so oppressed that we very often will put our arms around members of our community who are being in some way attacked, right? Particularly by forces of the right or by white people or, you know, and so we kind of try to keep everybody in the community. And that was played out on the national stage, the confusion about how to deal with Thomas, especially after the Anita Hill allegations came out. But what emerged from that was I thought the black community learned, we actually don't have to support every single black person who comes to prominence just because they are the first or the second, or because they're gonna be the most powerful person in this or that position. That we actually have reached a point of political maturity in this country, that we have the right to say, yes, that person may be black, but they do not in fact reflect the interests of you know, most black people. So I said that was an important milestone. So I say all that to say, it was kind of interesting then to come back to the Amy Coney Barrett nomination in which the playbook was the 1993 playbook. It was like old, you know, like, like nobody was supposed to notice that she's like the opposite of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you know? And instead we were supposed to participate in a kind of bizarro world confirmation in which, you know, we were supposed to pretend like this is all part of the same thing when in fact it is not part of the same thing. And I appreciate that people just weren't having it. I know, you know people were very clear that that's not what this is. And you can create your own narrative. You can create your own playbook and your own PR campaign around your nominee. You're entitled to do that. And they did that. I don't think it was particularly effective, at least across the board. I think it was effective for the base that would support her, but I don't think it carried resonance beyond that. I want to talk before we leave RBG for one quick second. I want to talk about two places where she proved pretty prophetic and one of them you've already talked about, which is voting while Black during COVID. Um, one of the things she wrote uh, in the primary, in the Wisconsin primary, was that people were going to be asked to endanger their life and go vote in person. Uh, that was one of the last really sharp things she wrote, but she also wrote that dissent in Shelby County, which, my God, we should all have tattooed on our foreheads right now. And I I wonder if, you know, it's funny because I think the knock on Justice Ginsburg, and we don't need to go into this, we've done it on this show before, is that she didn't always see race the way she ought to have seen race. But boy, she saw race both in what it was going to be like to be a, a black or brown voter standing in a line in the cold in the next wave of a pandemic because you were not protected by your own government. And she, boy, she saw what was going to happen after Shelby. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about, because you mentioned, Sherilyn, that she did, in that sense, share with uh, Thurgood Marshall this vision of the world outside of the dusty law books that was really urgently important to her. Yes. In fact, I'm, I would even stress that she was often compared to Thurgood Marshall, and I've done it myself, just in terms of the creation of an area of law that didn't exist before they started really creating it, right? Marshall really kind of constructing and creating not only civil rights law with his team, he certainly didn't do it single-handedly, but also creating the concept of the civil rights lawyer, by the way, which I always point out, right? That that was actually something created that didn't exist before, um, which I think is pretty powerful. Women's rights law was was an area of law that Ruth Bader Ginsburg 
founded, one of the things I always personally loved about Justice Ginsburg is that he would say, I, I can't be compared to him because when he was doing his work, he was risking his life. He was risking his life going to litigate those cases in the South. And every time he was trying to make those advances, he was doing it at peril to himself. So that, first of all, tells you that she understands the difference between being in New York, right, and working at the ACLU and litigating women's rights cases, right, and having to take a train or plane um, to South Carolina, to Hearn, Texas, to Lakeland, Florida, right, and having to stay, you know, several days, nights, weeks to try cases, to drive through country roads on your own, um, and, and to understand what it mean, what it meant to be a Black man being a civil rights lawyer litigating those cases. And that already tells you that Justice Ginsburg was very finely tuned to that reality. And that reality is what she expressed both in Shelby and in the Wisconsin uh, case where she talked about um, you know, voters having to choose between their health, their life, and, and voting, and recognizing that Black voters were particularly vulnerable to COVID. That week that the Wisconsin decision came out, it just radicalized me that week, because a day before the Supreme Court's decision came out, the report came out that although Black people constitute 28% of the population of Milwaukee, they were at that point comprising 70% of the COVID deaths. It just blew me away. And so then to see people standing in the lines, Black people standing in the lines with the masks on, I've just said it just radicalized me in powerfully important ways. It radicalized me, one, in that we were going to do everything possible we could to increase absentee voting. And we filed five cases trying to relax absentee voter restrictions in the South. But it also reinforced for me, uh, and I actually run the pictures in my mind a lot now in this moment of tremendous strain and crisis, how absolutely resilient and badass Black people have been in this period. And I fight for them. So it was powerful. And Ginsburg's words in that case, and then in the Shelby case, speaks to that. It speaks to the protections that Black people need in a system that has been engaged in voter suppression continuously through the, I know that everybody is noticing voter suppression now, but you know, I started LDF as a voting rights lawyer in 1988. So like, seriously, this has been going on forever. And a reminder that particularly in the Shelby case, you know, with section five, which is the preclearance requirement that required, you know, jurisdictions with a history of discrimination to get permission from a federal authority to make voting changes, Justice Ginsburg had a wonderful line about, you know, you don't throw away your umbrella because you're not getting a wet in a rainstorm. Remember that what the Senate said in enacting Section 5 was that Section 5 was designed, they said, to not only address the forms of discrimination that they were currently seeing in 1965, but also designed to address what would be, and I'm quoting now, the ingenious forms of discrimination that would be developed in the future. It's one of the most important pieces of civil rights legislation for that reason. Here it is, you had the United States Senate recognizing that this wasn't gonna stop and that it was gonna shape shift. They knew that there would be things that they hadn't even thought of in 1965, that those jurisdictions, mostly in the South, were gonna come up with to try to keep black people from voting. They knew that it wasn't going to stop even with this legislation. 
And so when we then fast forward to 2013 and the Supreme Court here in the Shelby County case, and you hear you know, Justice Roberts and you hear Justice Kennedy at oral argument, you hear them refusing to even credit the senators who actually knew and who were trying to get out ahead of what they knew would be the changing landscape. They knew it would look different. They knew it wouldn't look the same, but they knew that it would continue to exist. And Justice Ginsburg's metaphor of the umbrella and the storm perfectly combines with the Senate's intention of getting at the new ingenious forms of discrimination that we haven't thought of yet. That just because you don't, you're not getting wet doesn't mean that it's not raining. Um, and so just losing that ability on the court with you know Justice Ginsburg's passing means we now no longer have a civil rights lawyer on the Supreme Court. Right. We had a civil rights lawyer in the Supreme Court all the years that Marshall was on. Then we had Ginsburg. Now we have no civil rights lawyers on the Supreme Court. It means that we are missing that window, that perspective, that ability to speak with clarity about the challenges faced by people who live at the margin and who live at the bottom and who are subject to ongoing and systemic discrimination. Could to speak to it in that way, in that way. And Sherilyn, this dovetails exactly with what you said about even the event announcing uh, Amy Coney Barrett, because there was a, a, a willful blindness, as you're saying, to the actual suffering of huge communities of brown and black people, not just economic suffering, the actual loss of life. And it's interesting in reading, you know, I'm thinking of some of the the opinions and dissents this week, even coming out of the court as they make these late night, barely analyzed decisions about, as you said, a whole host of efforts by various states to make it a little bit less lethal to vote. And the ways in which I'm thinking of Justice Gorsuch, I'm thinking of Justice Kavanaugh, seem to dismiss the idea that actual, you know, Gorsuch says it's not a natural disaster uh, under, under any construction of, of those words. You know, putting, putting COVID and the language around the suffering of COVID into scare quotes. And it's really that strange, willful blindness of who is suffering and the extent of the suffering. Uh, that again sticks in the craw because that's not what you're seeing at all. These are not words that go in scarecrows quotes. This is the truth, right? Well, so now this relates actually to I think another issue that in some ways is also connected to selecting someone like Amy Coney Barrett to sit on the court. I can maybe best exemplify it through our Alabama case and, and where we challenged Alabama's absentee voter restrictions and Alabama. Um, in order to vote absentee, you had to get two third-party witness signatures on your ballot. You had to include a copy of your government-issued photo ID. Um, and actually, before we filed our suit, you also had to have an excuse for why you were going to absentee vote. Um, and so they, so Alabama did relax in the primary the, the need to have an excuse for absentee voting, but they still insisted on you know, the two witnesses and the copy of your photo ID. So here we are in the middle of a pandemic in which many of our clients, you know, are suffering from pre-existing conditions. They have COPD, they have asthma. So they haven't seen their grandchildren, right? Because they're following CDC guidelines that they need to remain, you know, socially distanced, that they shouldn't be with their families. This is incredibly painful for people and yet they're doing it. 
And yet Alabama is saying, I need you to interact with three people to cast that ballot. <laughs> I need you to interact with two witnesses. And the Secretary of State said on the on the copy of your government issue photo ID, because we said, well, they don't have scanners in their homes. These are elderly people. And he said, well, they just go to Kinko's. Oh, good. Yeah. So that was that's his prescription. So we so we challenged this. And then there were counties in Alabama that actually tried to do the right thing and offer curbside voting. And this is an Alabama law that prevents curbside voting, but the Secretary of State decreed that it could not happen, that curbside voting couldn't happen. So all those three things were part of the challenge. The district court issues an opinion that is detailed. It is detailed in the reality of COVID. It is a detailed reality of who is suffering from COVID in Alabama, who is vulnerable to COVID in Alabama. It is detailed in the in the in its conclusion based on all of the facts that it details in the opinion that the state has failed to show that its procedures for absentee ballots in fact address potential issues of voter fraud. I mean, they, it lays it out: 197 pages. That's how detailed it is. 11th Circuit stays the district court's injunction, and we know what the Supreme Court did. And we'd actually won on the curbside voting piece. The Supreme Court allows the state to get rid of that too. What's important here is um, you mentioned it. You said, you know, barely analyzed decisions. So we've got this whole shadow docket right. in which the court is not even going to really tell us <laughs> yep. why, right? So, so, so now you've, so you've got to contrast it with, you know, because our lawyers are litigating in these cases. They're presenting the witnesses. They're presenting the experts. They're, they're doing the job of building a record like Thurgood Marshall did. And we get out of it a 197-page opinion, right, from the from the trial court. So this is true in the Alabama case. Think about the Florida formerly incarcerated person's voting case, another one where we get this detailed district court right. opinion, right? And the Supreme Court can't be bothered with issuing a decision that gives us some clarity about what the hell they're talking about, what we are doing right now. And, and I resist it because it, it, it's I find it so outrageous that we're piecing together from concurrences and from dissents of grants of stays, what they really mean, was Purcell really in play here? Is it that they believe that state legislatures shouldn't be disturbed, but if it's a state board, that's different? Like we're doing all of this and you contrast that to the stark reality that you could read in the 197 page opinion from Judge Abdul Kalan in Alabama, and it's outrageous. It's once again, trying to get us to pay no attention to the reality of what is in fact happening on the ground and what this really means to black and brown people trying to vote. And instead we get these tiny little concurrences in which as you say, there's the scare quotes, this is not a natural disaster. Which natural disaster have we had in the United States has killed 220,000 people? But but there's a way in which they get to in these, in these very brief little essays, <laughs> create a new reality, right? That wipes out the 197 pages of detailed reality on the ground, built on the record presented by actual practicing attorneys. And I say that it's connected to, to selecting someone like Amy Coney Barrett, because it's not unconnected to my just saying there are no more civil rights lawyers on the bench. One of the things I loved about Justice Marshall and that others said about him, and that was also true of Justice Ginsburg is the ability to know how to read and respect the record. Yep. So for those of us who actually practice law, that's kind of important, right? We're, we're in there. We're, we're civil rights lawyers. We know all the inferences don't go in our direction. We know the laws are not all in our favor. 
but we are playing the game the way it's supposed to be played. We are coming in and we are bringing good, strong cases. We are building a sound, solid record. We're proving our case. And when the court swats that away with some theoretical stuff that doesn't engage that reality that a district judge was able to see and find and articulate, now we have a kind of systemic issue. And we begin then to continue to add to the court people who don't have, and not just the Supreme Court, by the way, we're adding courts across the country at, at the district court and circuit court level over the last three years, judges who have no litigation experience, judges who don't have to deal with a record, who've never built a record, <laughs> um, you know, who've never really had to engage at that level. And I think that's part of the recreation of a new way of approaching the law that is also important not to lose sight of. Every time one of these decisions comes out from the court with you know, some tiny little concurrence, uh, it, it, it's such an insult, really, to the enormity of the issue and to the depth of the record that was marshaled before a federal judge to demonstrate the urgency of the situation. And in some sense, Sherilyn, I, I really think it's important what you're saying because we see it in the census case. We see it time and time again. It's not just the election, you know, these last minute election cases. It's just this persistent sense that we can just toss hundreds of pages of findings of fact, hundreds of pages of analysis of the law and simply import into this I mean, in some of these cases, and I don't want to belabor uh, this week's, you know, decisions and orders out of the court, because as you say, in some way, you're kind of reading tea leaves. You're reading the vestiges of half-formed arguments, you know, uh, Justice Kavanaugh's dissent in the Wisconsin case riddled uh, with error that he had to correct. Uh, This is just not the way to do it. And I think it further erodes confidence in the courts. But I, I will say the one merits thing that does seem like a turn to me that I want to question you about is this new language we're seeing coming out of Justice Alito, who's saying the issue isn't even vote fraud anymore. It's this quote unquote cloud of doubt that comes about when ballots are counted on November 4th. This isn't anywhere in any record that I know of. This is not a legal theory. This is, as best as I can tell, Sherilyn, tell me if I'm wrong, this is Donald Trump's sense of entitlement to have an answer on November 3rd because he wants one uh, that is now somehow being imported into judicial doctrine. And we're seeing it from Justice Kavanaugh. We're seeing it from Justice Alito. It's not even a legal argument. We've had military ballots for a very long time that are counted after Election Day. So I I really want to stop for one second and talk about that turn because that's not even about vote suppression anymore. Yeah. So uh, I'm really glad you brought that up because sometimes I I worry that we miss the kind of chilling moments that constitute some some new um, danger that has been introduced. And you've surely hit on one. Where is this cloud of doubt? Where is all of that? That is a political argument that has been raised by Donald Trump. It's a disinformation campaign that has been executed by Donald Trump you know, where where Trump is basically creating the impression 
that there is something illegal, fraudulent, or unusual about continuing to count ballots after election day, when that's how it's always been done. As you point out, military mail-in ballots are counted after election day. Absentee ballots are regularly counted after election day. People who voted provisionally on election day are coming in to cure their ballots during the week after election. And usually the entire week after an election, those ballots are being counted. In races that are not incredibly close, it may not change the outcome, and therefore lots of people don't pay attention to it. But in races that are incredibly close, it can be quite important. And I've been involved in some of these circumstances where uh, it matters, you know, the count of those ballots. But Trump has been running this drumbeat that somehow there's something unusual about that. This is part two of the disinformation campaign. He started in the spring when he realized that many organizations were fighting to make absentee ballot voting easier, certainly for black voters in our in, in our case, in the case of the Legal Defense Fund. And then Trump started a disinformation campaign about absentee voting. What he suggested was something new, unusual, illegal, fraudulent, and so forth, even though he's done it a million times. And, and then Bill Barr, the attorney general, glommed onto that and said, yes, yes, foreign powers may be able to somehow do something with that. So, so, so first you had the disinformation campaign to discredit the idea of absentee voting. And then you have part two of it, discrediting counting the absentee votes after the election. And then you have this kind of hijacked narrative into both the opinions of Alito and Kavanaugh that foreshadow <laughs> their embrace of this political theory. This is extraordinarily dangerous. This is, as you say, not introduced into the record in any of the cases, no evidence of this. And yet somehow this sneaking suspicion, and it shouldn't be a sneaking suspicion to Kavanaugh, who was involved in the Bush versus Gore litigation, or to Amy Coney Barrett, who was involved in the Bush versus Gore litigation in a limited way, but nevertheless was involved in the question of whether or not absentee ballots were legal, particular absentee ballots were legal after the election. They know very well that absentee ballots are counted after election day, and they know the significance of having those ballots counted. And yet we're seeing the indications, we're seeing the hints that this particular form of disinformation is likely to be resuscitated in the decisions that are likely to come over the next two weeks as the results of the election are challenged. This is so scary. This is so dangerous. And it has to be called out. More from Sherilyn Eiffel of the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund in just a moment. Sherilyn, I, I feel like if I could put a, a caption under the face of yours that I'm seeing on Zoom, it would say something like, it was always broken, damn yes. it. And I feel like, look, this has been a year in which a lot of Americans have slowly begun to maybe start to understand racialized policing, right? Mm -hmm. Started to understand how broken the for-profit prison system is, how broken felon disenfranchisement. All of this is happening I know for you it must be like, dudes, <laughs> this has always been the case. And that is certainly the case for voting, right? I, we've had Carol Anderson on this show saying, if you were black, you always stood in a line. You always had the risk of polling place closures. You always had all these risks. And the fact that white people are starting to realize all these things doesn't mean that it's only broken now. It's just that we've only 
stumbled into the realization that these systems, in some ways, were designed to be this broken. And I wonder, A, (laughs) how frustrated you are that it took us to this, you know, to an election that may just not function, Uh, but also all the ways in which the public is finally coming to understand what it is that you've been doing at LDF (laughs) at a moment when this is not new. This is not new for you at all. No. No, it's it's not. Um, there've been these interesting conversations about you know voter intimidation, which um, you know I would say in my time as a civil rights lawyer, this is the year when I've been more concerned and alarmed about the possibility of physical voter intimidation than I than I ever have. And some people have said, you know, well, we want to be careful because we don't want to scare people away from voting. And and I've always re- replied with, you know, black people are the only people in this country who actually routinely risk their lives to vote uh, in the South. Even that's not new. <laughs> and, you know, our, our, you know, one of our clients said it in our Alabama suit, we remember risking our lives to vote. And he was talking about COVID. He said, I thought that was over. Right. So the idea that you actually would, you know, risk your life, stand in a line and risk your life to vote, whether it's from COVID or from Sheriff Jim Clark, that is a uniquely black experience in this country. So that's the reality. The second piece is what did Lonnie Guineer describe it as the a canary in the coal mine, the miner's canary? I am only frustrated, Dahlia, if at this point white people don't understand that the experiences of black people and what civil rights lawyers are privileged to see are the flaws in our democracy, are the canary in the coal mine for our entire society. That we actually are privileged to see the flaws and the cracks in the foundation of our democracy. And if you actually listen to us, instead of making it as though our issues are some niche issues that belong somewhere on the side, or turning issues that are at their core issues about race into issues about partisanship, when in fact race lies at the core, if you weren't so God awful determined to not talk about racism, And if you were not so determined to marginalize what civil rights lawyers know as you create your hierarchy in our profession of who are the people who really know what's going on, then you would be better equipped and in a position to repair these cracks in the foundation that ultimately bring the whole house down. Yes, they're doing it to black people, of course. But don't you think that it's damaging the entire foundation of our democracy? And now we can see it. The perfect example is our public education system, which we basically trashed rather than share it with black people. Okay, so we had a separate but equal system. Supreme Court says it's gotta be an integrated system. And what do we get? We get massive resistance, right? We get a concerted effort to avoid this. White people decide to create their own academies. They close the schools in Prince Edwards County for five years rather than integrate. Like they'll do anything not to comply with this decision. But you know what? A public education system is actually a key foundation, a key pillar of a strong democracy. What the Supreme Court said in Brown versus Board of Education was not just about segregation. They said education is the most important function of state and local government, and it is the very, and I'm quoting, foundation of citizenship. So any in any ways that you choose to damage the public education system, you are damaging the foundation of citizenship. So now we fast forward 65 years later, does it look like our citizenship is deeply damaged? It is, it is. 
So all of these things that we think we can talk about in this separate little bucket as though it's about race, all of the willingness to remove investments from public life so that you know people will feel like those people aren't getting free things, whether it's public education, public universities, public transportation, all the things that I was privileged in that period <laughs> to grow up with that were robust and strong that have been starved because there is a racial narrative that lays atop of it. All of that has weakened our democracy for everyone. So yes, it, this is, we've known this, <laughs> we've seen it. I'm happy that people's eyes are open now to issues of police violence, but I'm only distressed if people are willing after they feel like the crisis has passed to go back to the same thing. I'm only frustrated if people are not willing to recognize that they need a broader set of information, a broader universe of information to understand this country and that you cannot understand this country in its strengths and in its weaknesses without engaging the issue of race and racism. And for my own profession, that my own profession would understand this as well because they have been caught up in the undertow of this and have not covered themselves in glory. So I'm very glad that we have come to this issue of repair, because I fully agree that if Joe Biden wins the election and Democrats take the Senate, the battle only begins, right? Then it's time to repair and restore and try to scrabble our way back to something that uh, we never actually, I think you and I are now agreeing, we never really had. We had a, a, a nice movie that we ran in our heads about it. But one of the things that I am stuck on, and it's one of the reasons I really wanted to talk to you today, is what do we do about the courts? And and I ask that in part because my other guest on the show is Brian Fallon, who's working very, very hard to think about how to recalibrate the courts that, as you said, um, have been – this is a generational problem now. This is not a four-year problem. And yet I always think about you as a civil rights lawyer. You depend on the courts. And I've heard you express doubts about amending the Constitution to protect the vote. I've heard you say delegitimizing the courts is just a horrible idea because millions of vulnerable Americans still today rely on the judiciary to protect the environment, migrants, to protect women, to protect dreamers, LGBTQ communities, uh, voters across the boards. All of them, like it or not, have had their rights vindicated even just this past year in the federal courts. And I wonder how we have a conversation about the court as a problem that needs to be fixed when I think you as a civil rights attorney would say, even in a minority rule era like we're living in right now, the court is the solution as much as it is the problem. Well, it's definitely not the sole solution. And I, my, my, my feeling is that I've always been doing the the two things at once. So, you know, most of my scholarship has been about the need to bring greater diversity to the to the bench, right? So I've been criticizing the court at the same time I'm using it, right? Um, and that's, you know, look, if you're a civil rights lawyer, you're you're engaging in some magical thinking yourself because you are using this avenue that you know was not created for you, right? And you're using it and you're trying to manipulate and 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 work within this system in a way that produces results for people. But I have never been shy about critiquing the system itself, right? 
Um, and, you know, if you think about the whole movement to bring diversity to the federal courts, it was a deep critique. You know, Thurgood Marshall said about the Supreme Court, none of his, his, his colleagues, none of them knew anything about race until I got there. Not one of them. <laughs> right. You know, so, you know, first black secretary in the Supreme Court, Alice Stovall, that's Marshall's secretary that he brings with him from the Second Circuit, who he brought with him from LDF, right? So so there was always a thoroughgoing critique of the actual system, even as we worked in the system. What I have suggested is that as people think about solutions to the system, it's almost this year, I have to say, is, is kind of called the question, right? Because courts can delegitimize themselves. It's not about me delegitimizing a court. A court can delegitimize itself. It's what I've written about in the recusal context, right? It's about the appearance of impartiality as well, right? So our recusal statute doesn't say you should just recuse yourself as a judge if you actually have real bias. It says, even if a reasonable person would think that your impartiality could reasonably be questioned, you should probably step aside. And I mean you, Justice Barrett, right? So there is, you know, there's there's that standard, right? So that's, but that's on the court. It's not about whether we delegitimize the court. It's about whether the court delegitimizes itself. And that's a different project that requires a response from the people and from our profession. And if the court does that, when the court is all white, it delegitimizes itself. It required a response, which was the demand to bring diversity to the bench. When the entire federal system has been turned over to former prosecutors, the court delegitimizes itself. So that, you know, to be a federal judge, you're a former U.S. attorney or a former prosecutor of some kind. When we, when we do that, when we suggest that to sit on the federal bench, you have that one narrow background, you are delegitimizing yourself in the eyes of the public. And that requires a response so that we can have professional background diversity and we have civil rights lawyers and former public defenders and so forth on the bench. And when the court engages in activity or when the Senate engages in activity that delegitimizes the court, then we have to respond to that as well. So please don't read my, we shouldn't be trashing the idea of the courts um, to mean that we are bound not to take corrective action when actions by the court as a structure, not individual judges, but the court as a structure or by the Senate have in fact delegitimized the courts in the eyes of the public. Because at the end of the day, look, the people I represent, they would need to have a reason to believe in it. I'm, it's not my job to convince them. You know, I always say we, we try. We, we try in every forum that's available to us. We try in the political system. There are people who are in the, in the streets protesting. There are those of us who are in the courts litigating, right? We are, we are a disfavored minority in this country. We have to use every possible avenue and platform. But, you know, people looking at the courts, they're not feeling it. And I have said, for those of us who work within the court system, it would behoove our entire profession to try to make the courts fairer and legitimate because you want people to believe in the system. I'm not trying to convince them to do anything. I'm just telling them that this is an avenue that we are prepared to fight for you in this terrain and to try to produce results and outcomes. And in some instances, we have had amazing success historically. I've never said it's the only way. I've never said it's the absolute best way. It's the way that I can make available to you as an avenue. And it doesn't foreclose the others. And when transformative change has happened in this country, it's actually happened when all three things are happening. 
when there's a grassroots, mobilized grassroots movement and protests, when civil rights lawyers are firing on all cylinders in the courts, and when there's a, a moment of political transformation. That's what happened during the civil rights movement. All those three things were happening at the same time. It wasn't one of them. And actually, all those three things are happening now. And that's one of the reasons why I know that there is a potential for tremendous progressive transformation at this moment. It's not guaranteed by any stretch of the imagination, but I know that the ingredients are there to make that transformation happen. And my job is to do the part that I know, the part that I'm responsible for. And this is what I say to our profession. So many people are so outraged to their credit about the torture and killing of George Floyd, saw that video and said, you know what, maybe before I thought it was bad apples, but now there's something systemically wrong, we gotta do something. When I go to our profession and I talk about qualified immunity, what I say to them, to the ABA, to others, is like, this is a judge-made rule. This is not in the Constitution. This was created by us. By us, I mean by our profession, by judges. If we see a flaw in the system, and it's the part that we created that prevents accountability, I'm not asking you, ABA, to like train police officers or to do budgets to figure out how to defund. I'm not, I'm not asking you to, I'm asking you to do the part that you are responsible for. You are responsible for this doctrine. So what are you saying about a doctrine that you know has gone so completely out of whack that it would allow our client to be tased to death 19 times and have a court uphold qualified immunity for the officers who did it? So I'm asking people to just take on their thing. And so my thing is what I know and obviously I litigate in the court, so it does not behoove me to be out in the public saying, here's how I would you know, make all the different kinds of changes. I do talk a lot about diversity. I am prepared to talk about the fact that changes have to happen. We know that because frankly, what we have seen is delegitimizing. It does not help the courts in the eyes of the public. And that, that is a danger to our democracy. If, if we believe that the rule of law and a, and a legal system that is supposed to give everyone an equal shot. We know, of course, it doesn't. They're supposed to be striving towards that, becomes completely delegitimized in the eyes of the public, then you are weakening your democracy. So everyone should want to fix it. It's not controversial. It's not partisan. You should want to fix it because you believe in our democracy and you understand the same way people feel about our political system. People understand our political system has been delegitimized. Maybe it's because of money in politics or whatever people think is the reason. I don't think anybody's walking around saying, no, our political system's working. It's humming along. It's working great. People have great confidence in it. They don't. And it's harmful to our democracy. So we should want to fix it. Well, the same is true of our judicial system at this point, And we should want to fix it. That's the truth about law enforcement. Right? It's broken. You should want to fix it. <laughs> because people have no confidence in it. And that's harmful. Um, so I guess I'm just asking people to be honest about our democracy, about the flaws in our democracy, to see that what they have not attended to has only gotten worse and to understand that it only will get worse unless we are courageous and bold and willing to look it in the eye and say, there is a problem. How are we going to fix this problem? So I, I like this framing, Sherilyn, because it answers a question I've been struggling with for a long time. What you're saying is blaming the victims 
of a corroded system for delegitimizing the system is victim blaming. And that you're making me realize, somebody said to me this week, it's important to understand in 2000 in Bush v. Gore, the Supreme Court didn't decide the election. They handed down a judicial opinion that Al Gore conceded and that the country acceded to. And what you're saying is if a Supreme Court, for all the reasons you and I talked about up top, hands down an illegitimate decision based on another judge-made rule, Purcell, or another <laughs> judge-made, you know, fantasy about now we decide elections the night of, uh, that will not be the public delegitimizing the court. That is the court delegitimizing itself. And I think that that, that feels to me the right analytical way to move forward into what is going to be a really fraught time. Yes. And I, and I actually think it's, it's a, it's a bit of a trick. It's almost like when people would ask me, uh, over the last three years, they stopped asking over the last 18 months, but for certainly for the first 18 months of the Trump presidency, do you think he's racist? Um, you know, tell me why, like there was, that was a continuous journalistic, you know, thing. Um, that, so the point is to get me to say that the president of the United States is racist <laughs> rather than actually to do the job of assembling all of the facts. And there are many, <laughs> right. That you would array together to determine because racism is an actual thing. It's not a fantasy. It's not something that somebody even came up with. It actually exists in law. It's capable of being proved. Right. And that you would just um, do the work yourself, but it's to try to always get the victim to say the thing so that then you can say, Cheryl and Eiffel said, rather than what the truth is. And I feel like some of that happens with this conversation about the courts. Why are you asking civil rights lawyers? Obviously, we know that it doesn't work in our favor. What inferences work in our favor? They don't. They don't. We have to prove everything. We have to prove that somebody saying the N-word in the workplace, you know, actually creates a hostile work environment. We have to, you know, we have to prove and prove and prove and prove. And, and, and we do it. We, we, we take it up. Uh, it, it's it's like the you know the Alabama voting case. We take it up. We actually do the trial. You know how many virtual trials we've done since March? You know, we get on the phone, we get on Zoom, we get our witnesses together, we get our experts. We actually do it, and it results in a 197-page opinion. We do it. We play the game. So stop asking us about you know why it's illegitimate. It is what it is. We we know that. We know that things that are obvious will not even go in our favor. We actually have to prove it every step of the way. But I think that courts, like our profession, are not covering themselves in glory when they make the kinds of forays into uh, magical thinking that that Justice Roberts did in Shelby. You know that we're somehow there's a stain on the South to suggest that they should be covered by preclearance, and things have changed. Um, you know, with with no real expertise, swatting aside Congress's you know year of hearings and 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 development of a record. Um, that's I'm not, it's not, I'm not, I'm criticizing Justice Roberts. No, he's embarrassing himself by talking in this way about something he obviously doesn't know. And certainly I would say the last five years have proved what? Have proved that in fact, Justice Ginsburg was correct, that he was presumptuous and wrong, and that the result has weakened our democracy because now what used to be a regional issue of voter suppression has metastasized and become a national issue because Wisconsin said, hey, hey, that looks good. I can get in the game. Voter ID, it works like that. Let's do it. Right. Because Kansas said, oh, we can just move polling places. Right. Yeah. That's the idea. So now it's all over the country. Something that had been 
that existed was a problem, but had been at least regionally contained, now has metastasized and encompassed the entire country. So I don't take responsibility for that. Um, we take responsibility for actually ringing the alarm bell, which is the, you know, and now I'm mixing my metaphors, but that's the canary in the coal mine piece. We're the early warning system about flaws in the democracy that are dangerous. And if you comfort yourself by believing that that's just what happens to black people, or that's just what happens to gay people, or that's just what happens to women, what we are learning in this moment is that it will destroy our entire democracy. What people saw in the protests after George Floyd was killed in terms of the police response wasn't just a police response against black protesters. They saw it. So what I'm hoping is that we come out of this period with that knowledge that there is important information we have to bring to the table about how we make this a real democracy and a strong democracy. Right now it is weak and it has to be strengthened. Sherilyn Eiffel is the seventh president and director counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund. Her 2007 book, On the Courthouse Lawn, Confronting the Legacy of Lynching in the 21st Century, reflects her lifelong professional engagement in issues of race and American public life. She was, in fact, just named one of Glamour's Women of the Year, but she has been one of my Women of the Year for, my God, a long time. Sherilyn, I know you are up to your eyeballs in it, and I thank you for your work and thank you for your time today. Thank you so much, Dahlia. Thank you. We have been talking about reforming the courts for quite a long time on this show. We spoke with Aaron Belkin of Take Back the Court. He's one of the original Overton window openers back in April of 2019. Rumblings about structural court reform were just barely audible in the Democratic primary. But this week, with Amy Coney Barrett sworn in six days before an election in the aforementioned ceremony slash Trump campaign ad, those rumblings have erupted into a chorus on the left and garnered support from some pretty improbable people. Court reform is certainly no longer uh, just a hypothetical or an academic question, not as the court hands one late night decision after the next, determining which ballots are going to be thrown away if they arrive by way of a crawling postal system on, say, November 4th. My next guest today is Brian Fallon. He's co-founder and executive director of Demand Justice. It's a progressive movement fighting to restore balance to the courts. Before Demand Justice, Brian worked as director of public affairs for the U.S. Justice Department during the Obama administration. Prior to that, he was a top aide in the United States Senate, working for New York Democrat Chuck Schumer. He also served as national press secretary for Hillary Clinton's presidential bid. In other words, having worked a lot, in this system on the inside, Brian is now trying to save it from without. Slate Plus members will hear the full interview, but here's a taste of our conversation for non-members. And you can always sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash amicus plus. Brian Fallon, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so flattered to be on. So, so I, I'm going to open with the you told me so. Uh, I think I offered you this on Chris Hayes' show a few weeks back. Uh, I have been a very small C conservative uh, when it comes to court reform. And you've been saying, I think, for a lot longer than I have, that norms and wishful thinking are just not going to be enough to rebalance the judiciary. It took me a long time to get 
to where you have been for far longer. I guess I want to just start by asking, how frustrated are you this week that the debate that's raging about court reform, just as everybody seems to be coming online that this is a problem, is nomenclature? Should we call it court packing? Maybe we should call it a different word. I feel like we're literally workshopping something that you workshopped two years ago. And I want to just ask, uh, how frustrated are you? I want to say, first of all, let me express some modesty, because I feel like I'm a relative newcomer to this, too. Um, By certain standards, um, perhaps um, demand justice has been at the forefront of calling for uh, court reforms like expansion. Um, But really, that just dates back to uh, two years ago and the immediate aftermath of the Kavanaugh fight. Um, Prior to that, when we first started demand justice in the spring of 2018, it was not part of our mission statement to seek to add seats to the Supreme Court. It was more generally to just provoke an awakening on the uh, on the progressive movement about how we needed to center um, our judicial branch of government and funnel more activism and pressuring of Democrats um, in Congress to to uh, act on this issue. Um, it was only in the aftermath of the Kavanaugh fight and the um, extreme frustration that was experienced um, by many of us that were on the front lines of contesting that nomination, that Republicans had put their heads down and decided to confirm him, you know, freshly on the heels of having successfully blockaded the Antonin Scalia seat and then filling it with Neil Gorsuch, that I and others began consuming some writings from people that had been there prior to us. And so I started reading things from you know, some mutual friends of ours, people like Ellie Mistal, who was then still at Above the Law and now is at The Nation. Ian Milheiser, your colleague at Slate, uh, Mark Joseph Stern. Um, these are people that keep me informed on a regular basis uh, to this day about uh, the decisions that come out of the court. And a lot of them um, were talking about this in the fall of, of 2018. And um And then, you know, as we started to lean into this and started to organize around it, and we did spend the better part of 2019 and 2020 um, organizing volunteers to go ask presidential candidates in the Democratic presidential primary to take positions on this question. And one of the frequent criticisms or questions that we would get in response from skeptical candidates and Democratic lawmakers was, well, how do you stop a race to the bottom? How do you stop a tit for tat where if we add two seats or four seats, Republicans will just do the same the next time they regain power. And then I encountered a piece written by um, a constitutional law professor at Columbia by by the name of David Posen, um, who wrote about this idea of this asymmetrical warfare that Republicans have been carrying out with respect to the courts, but really across the board in terms of trying to entrench their own political power through means that are not necessarily illegal or unconstitutional, but which violate democratic norms and a sense of fair play. David's essay was all about that, you know, even if progressives may wish to de-escalate the situation, they might need to escalate it in the short term in order to give the proper incentives for Republicans to come to the table and negotiate a truce. And to me, that is what this is all about. If you want to get back to a system where the court's power relative to the other branches of government is sort of right-sized and where both sides, Republicans and Democrats, sort of take their hand off the grenade pin um, when it comes to each of these judicial confirmation battles, we need to we need to convince the Republicans that it's not in their interests to any longer 
um, execute the strategy that they've been carrying out for the last several years. So my pitch to um, Democrats in Congress and to other um, left-leaning advocacy organizations that are not yet there yet on ideas like adding seats is that even if you're a normsy-minded person and you worry about the erosion of our institutions, we need to escalate in order to ever have a chance of successfully de-escalating. Um, and so that's, I think, the conversation that we need to have with people over these next six months if Biden wins and then in, and then we have this commission that he's indicated he's going to appoint if he does win. And that is a wrap for this episode of Amicus. Thank you so much for listening in. Thank you so much for your letters and your questions. You can always keep in touch at amicus at slate.com. You can find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham. Gabriel Roth is editorial director. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer. And June Thomas is senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. We will be back with another episode of Amicus next week. We'll see you on the other side. Take good care of each other. Wear your masks. And please drop your ballot off. Don't mail it in. Thanks for listening.